Hello, everyone, and thank you for listening to the Path 11 podcast. We are speaking with an organizational consultant and ordained Buddhist chaplain in end-of-life care, Pierre Zimmerman. Pierre has been working in behavioral and elder health care for over 30 years in many capacities, including business administration, program development, and contracting and marketing in the U.S. and in Canada. He holds a bachelor's in psychology and philosophy and a master's degree in organizational management. Pierre was ordained as a Buddhist chaplain in Santa Fe in 2011 and worked at the DMR Cancer Care Center at Bay State Medical Center as an interface chaplain in training for American Clinical Pastoral Certification. He is now mentoring chaplaincy students and teaching core programs at the Upaya Zen Institute in Santa Fe. And we're also really interested in speaking to Pierre today about his mindfulness trainings. And just also wanted to let you know that not all of the people that we're able to speak with have the capability to tune into Skype where the audio is a little bit clearer. So this interview was done via landline and you just might notice a little bit difference in the quality from some of our other podcasts. But we'd like to welcome Pierre Zimmerman to our show. Thanks so much, Pierre, for coming on our show. My pleasure. Now, I actually met Pierre through just uh, working here in Saratoga Springs. Um, he and his wife run a wellness center called One Roof, and then they also expanded their business to have One Big Roof, which is where they allow practitioners to rent space and hold workshops and things of that sort. So I've been able to do that with my own practice, and I think Pierre is just a great guy in doing wonderful work in the community here in Saratoga Springs and asked him to join us and come on the podcast. So thanks so much. Thank you for having me. Yeah, so I, I would like to just um, learn a little bit more about how you came to mindfulness in your life. Um, I know that you're ordained as, as a Buddhist chaplain. You're running uh, mindfulness-based stress reduction programs, and it's really kind of part of your practice. So how did you come to this in your life? Sure. So <clears throat> I came in this country when I was 21, and I happened to meet some Tibetan uh, Rinpoches and Lamas and was very interested in the practice. Um, I actually have an undergraduate degree in philosophy and sort of oriental philosophy too. So I always had an interest and um, <clears throat> I practiced meditation for quite a few years now, probably close to 40 years, um, on and off during my life in corporate healthcare, um, but it kept me sane, so to speak. <laughs> At any rate, um, I did quit uh, the corporate world about eight years ago, and 10 years ago actually, and decided to take the course on mindfulness-based stress reduction so I could teach. And I really wanted to be with clients or patients and do that kind of work. And um, I actually ran into Dr. Niemer in Santa Fe where I was doing my <clears throat> program for chaplaincy and uh, it was a silent retreat and I heard her talk about mindfulness and her training in Saratoga and uh, we connected and uh, she told me to come up to Saratoga and uh, she, she will have a place for us to do that kind of work and I'm glad I did. And just wonderful work to see people make shifts in their lives. We have 
a wide uh, variety of people who join. We have physicians, we have nurses, teachers. We also have people who retired. We have people stressed out in the workplace or burned out, so to speak. And uh, we also have people who come out of um, mental health work, uh, their own or with other people. And uh, we twisted, I mean, we, we changed the program a little bit <clears throat> from the original program at UMass Medical Center. We added more neurobiology, neuroscience, and also some more movement, what we call them bodied awareness programs where we move in silence in pairs and triads and do some work on <clears throat> how to be engaged, how to be in relationship in a mindful way. Great, yeah. Yeah, no, that's fine. And can you, what type of mindfulness and meditation do you teach? Because I feel like you can go on the website and you can find meditations, but there's different types of ways to meditate. It could either be like a guided meditation, breathing, med breath meditation, uh, different types of meditation through yoga. So can you explain a little bit of what the mindfulness... Um, well, in terms yeah. of mindfulness, the definition is it's embodied awareness, paying attention in a moment with an intention or curiosity and letting go of judgment. Um, so it's really looking at our interior landscape and, and the geography of the heart, so to speak, and not be distracted by <clears throat> any, you know, outside sort of forces, so to speak. So we really want to learn, have people learn how to be really present to themselves and also the world around them so that they can take it into the world and uh, not just sitting on a cushion. Um, it's, some of it is based on Buddhist practices, more um, <clears throat> psychological practices. We do mix a whole bunch of topics during the class, for instance, like forgiveness, how to build resiliency. Uh, some of it is guided, but over time as people practice, we talk less and less so that people really can be with themselves. Uh, become intimate with the breath. The breath is very crucial and important. It's sort of an anchor when people get spacey or kind of really get lost in a, in a, what we call the mind stream, which, you know, which are thoughts, memories, fantasies, projections, all the conceptual parts of the mind, our thinking process. And uh, so in the beginning, we focus people on paying attention to the breath, to what comes up, accumulates and dissipates, just really looking at the relationship they have with what emerges and dissipates. Um, that's really basic. It's very difficult to do because in our society, we sort of function from the head up and the neck up, and we're constantly thinking, analyzing, evaluating, and we very much rewarded for that. So. While we call ourselves human beings, we're pretty much human doings, and um, this practice helps us to balance the being and the doing in many ways. Uh, it's also balancing attentional um, <clears throat> focus, cognitive, emotional, as well as volitional in terms of the intentions. So some of it is not all that different from others, but I think the focus is really on the practice, and the more people practice, the more they're going to make shifts in their lives um, and towards well-being and well-flourishing. Now, I know a lot of people would agree and know or have heard that meditation is really good for the body. Um, there's some, you know, physiological 
effects that can happen when you quiet the mind and your breathing and your meditating. Can you speak more about how meditation can affect the body physically? Sure. So the first few classes in in the mindfulness program that we teach are really to help people getting more embodied. So we do body scans. Also, I call it body relaxation with people who are chronically ill or catastrophic illnesses. But the idea is to really feel sensations in the body. And there are a lot of somatic issues with people, and I think most of us are not feeling sensations in our body. So we want people to really experience that. Uh, We take them through exercises from the top of the head all the way down to their toes. And the body has a lot of wisdom and information for us. Um, You know, for instance, when we get activated emotionally, we know our blood pressure rises, we get sweaty, we start moving around. So if we use mindfulness, which one of the elements is to sort of use uh, a pause to be aware of what's going on. So the body can inform us, okay, I'm getting angry, for instance. I can feel it in my body. And then we can use our mind to slow things down rather than react. And um, we can, you know, get some insight. Okay, this is what happened. I'm getting all <clears throat> activated and I need to stop. And we actually use the, the acronym STOP for uh, taking that little pause. And basically the S stands for STOP. The T means that we take quite a few deep breaths so that we can calm the body down again. The O stands for open up to what emerges inside. <clears throat> Excuse me. And then P stands for proceed thereafter. So it gives us a little bit of safety valve from reactivity and we can assess what's going on and then maybe take the time and energy to respond to what's going on. Um, you know, Viktor Frankl, who went to um, horrible things in concentration camps, um, <clears throat> had, has a great quote. Uh, somebody asked him, you know, how did you deal with it? And he said, between every stimuli and every response, there's a pause, and in that pause lies freedom. So it's taking that moment of awareness not to react, not to act, uh, and then regret it afterwards, but to really sort of assess what's going on and then, you know, maybe have some action thereafter. Wow, I love that quote. That's great. Thank you for sharing that. Sure. Um, Now, sometimes, you know, I run meditation groups as well, and I find that some people who come and might be beginners, they're almost stressed about meditating. I don't know if you experience this too, but they're so fearful and they put so much pressure on, uh, you know, wanting to try to control their thoughts or not have any thoughts. And I don't know if you run into this too, but it almost feels like people are feeling like I should stop all thought. And if I can't stop thought and I'm thinking during meditation, I didn't do it right. Yeah. (laughs) We, We teach what's called effortless effort. So, you know, in the beginning, we call it the cascading mind. When people don't take the time to slow down and just sit with themselves and pay attention, what happens is like there's this cascading thought uh, stream coming up and people kind of, uh, you know, get panicky and more anxious. And we tell them that, you know, we call it the monkey mind. It's it's natural because when we don't take the time with this practice, uh, that's what happens in the beginning. And so, you know, we teach them to be really kind to themselves and just observe what what happens, what emerges. And I compare it often to, you know, to a, 
like a stage uh, event. So you're not the producer, you're not the writer, you're not the actor. You're just observing sort of the drama that develops in, in your own mind. And what we're really interested in is looking at the relationship we have with things. Um, so we don't try to change it. We attempt not to be hijacked by our mind stream, but we just pay attention. And letting go of judgment is a big piece, and that's what we focus on a lot because judgment is a one-way street. It, it's a dead end. And what we tell people instead is to use discernment. You know, what is beneficial, what's not beneficial? Is it really worth getting anxious, and if you do get anxious, just call it, name it what it is, I'm anxious, without a qualifier, and that tends to slow the body down too, because, you know, we get into neurophysiology, we have the insula who sort of has a map of the body, so just naming something without a qualifier helps calming the body down. So there are all these little techniques, but yeah, people want to stop thoughts and I tell them, forget it. Um, <laughs> it's going to take a long time before you get into those little islands of non-thought uh, between the continuum of consciousness, you know. So, uh, but, but really, we really um, suggest people to really be kind to themselves because we have a big critique in our head, most of us do, and uh, judgment is really a waste of time in this practice. Now, with practicing, you said you've been practicing for over 40 years. You've had a, a uh, meditation practice? 30, 30. Okay. Uh, yeah, yeah, I mean, I, I practice on and off. You know, in my younger years, I practiced for quite a while. Then I got invested in the corporate world. And uh, I did practice, not on a regular basis, but probably for the 25 past years, pretty much practice every morning. Um, again, you know, my own uh, humble opinion is that 20 minutes, 30 minutes is better than sitting there for an hour and going shopping or being somewhere else in your mind. Um, so the more attention we can use and be present in the moment, the better off. And for a lot of people, we do a drop-in with each class for about 10 minutes, which is the way to start, just to be quiet, to drop into stillness and, and, and vividness. So. It takes practice, like everything else. If you want to be proficient at playing violin, you know, they say 10,000 hours. Um, we'll start from the beginning, and uh, <laughs> 10, hour, 10 minutes every day is a good thing. So. And how would you say, or how have you recognized your meditation practice? Um, how did it evolve over these 30, 35 years? Like, where, where do you see yourself now, or how are you able to get into that meditative state and is it different than when you first began? Oh, it's very different. It took a lot of evolution um, because I, I I went to a lot of different retreats and workshops or hourly, you know, presentations with a lot of Tibetan people and um, also inside meditation folks and, um, and then later on Zen, which is much more rigorous in the sense of the form part. But basically, it's the same process. And, and over years, what really changed for me is the depth and the understanding. Uh, so it gained certainly a lot more clarity, a lot more wisdom. It um, <clears throat> also became more tender because of the practice of loving kindness and compassion. And, um, <clears throat> you know, in, in, in Buddhism, we talk about the two wings of the bird, which are compassion and wisdom. Uh, you can't have without the other one. 
you can have one without the other one. In other words, if you have lots of compassion, it gets you into a dangerous zone because we, we're going to get fried, we're going to get burned out, and uh, compassion with is dangerous, compassion for having empathy for is much better, so we don't get wrapped up in the storylines of other people and their suffering. Uh, wisdom is very important, and that's gained through the practice of sitting and, and getting more clarity of who I am, who I am in relationship to other people, even though we do that in a sitting you know, position by ourselves, but it, it allows us to be more connected to the rest of the world and also be engaged, socially engaged, I think. Uh, where in the beginning, I was just interested to sit on a cushion, be by myself, very often zoned out and just, you know, dissociated and got lost for an hour and then came back, and I thought it was wonderful. Uh, we're now look at that as, you know, that's not really it. There's <laughs> very little to do with that. And, and mm -hmm. the other piece is taking this practice into the real world, uh, which is very difficult. And we, we also teach mindful communication, which is very important in terms of how to be in the real world, meeting our edges with partners, with other people in the workplace with different contexts, and how to really be mindful, which is a real challenge. Because uh, as human beings, we, we're very tender, and we can get aroused very easily. And with mindful communication, um, can you expand a little bit on that? Is it more teaching that when you really are across from someone or speaking with someone that you're very present and holding the space for them as opposed to maybe having a conversation but doing a couple of things on the side or, um, you know, maybe yeah, running things through your head? Uh, right. So, so in, in a class we teach about assertiveness versus being passive versus being aggressive or passive-aggressive. In other words, how do we take care of our needs? Everybody has needs. There's nothing wrong with needs. It's the strategies we use to meet our needs. And how can we do that? How can I meet my needs and also allow the other person that I'm involved with, whether it's at work or at home or family, how can I also allow them to meet their needs? And that's tough. Um, <clears throat> We talk about nonviolent communication. In other words, we don't, we know, we observe what's going on. We don't uh, label people, diagnose them. We make requests rather than demand. We we sort out what feelings are versus thoughts. A lot of people tend to say, you know, I feel that, blah blah blah, and that's a thought. And um, <clears throat> A lot of people have actually a hard time identifying feelings and mentioning feelings, and nobody can take away um, <clears throat> your feelings. You know, you feel sad, you feel angry, whatever it might be. Uh, nobody can argue with that. Where if I say I feel that you, you know, as soon as we put out the you, we create separation. Mm -hmm. So we look at that and, and how we can express our needs, feelings, and uh, <clears throat> communicate in such a way where other people don't get aroused either. Uh, so trying to avoid conflict or if there is conflict, how to come back later on when things calm down and say, you know, I, I need some space. I won't abandon you. I'll come back. But right now I can't talk. I can't formulate anything in a, in a way that might be beneficial for both of us. So it's a whole technique that we take people through and, um, you know, we look at, at how people rescue other people and how they don't meet their needs by doing that or how people feel vict as victims and, and how they need to snap out and go get into an empowerment 
uh, triangle, and then people who sort of um, use their power upon us for different reasons. So we look at the drama triangle and then the empowerment triangle, how to move from one to the other. And, um, you know, it's tough being a human being. I mean, that's what we really explore is how tender we are, how we can get hurt easily, and also all our triggers and all our sort of self-talk that we use that's not always beneficial. Right, right. Yeah, and um, I think it was a couple of weeks ago before I reached out to you, I had a client of mine that is in remission from cancer, and I knew that you guys ran a cancer support group, and that's how I stumbled on another one of your pages and learning that you too are a survivor, I believe, of a stage four cancer? Yes. Yeah, so yeah, it, I don't know when I was living in Saratoga on a lake, and um, I was going to go back into the city to start a company. Um, to, to basically psychiatrists and psychologists to help them with managed care because I did a lot of contracting for a big organization. And um, then 9-11 happened, and I had back problems, etc. And then one day I actually <clears throat> had blood in my urine and um, got scared because I knew enough. And I, and I had all kinds of symptoms for a while, but, you know, my father's son, you don't go to see a physician unless you can't get up anymore. It's a good old European way of dealing with, with some kind of illness. <laughs> Anyways, I did go, found out that um, I, serious, I had a serious problem with my left kidney, and, um, and I decided to move back to Western Mass where I had a lot of support system, and I did that. And um, what happened is my kidney, the tumor was so big in my left kidney that it broke through and went into the ureter, so I had um, <clears throat> problems in the ureter also, not in the bladder. Long story, I got surgery, uh, they took the kidney out, um, I had chemo for five months, which was horrible, and then uh, <clears throat> about eight, nine months later, they took out my ureter, they just basically cut it off, and uh, closed my bladder <clears throat> laparoscopically in Boston, which was young doctor, Dr. Dahl, who was just a whiz. And um, I was out for three years. It was a tough, tough journey. And um, I was very sick. And, <clears throat> you know, but it's, I think deep down, I sort of had this notion that I'm going to make it. And uh, I, I also did a lot of alternative. When they told me I had four months to live, it was like, what do I have to lose? And I went a couple of, you know, Dana-Farber, Sloan Kettering, and they said, no, nah, you don't want to mix different um, therapies, and I did anyways. I did Chinese herbs with a friend of mine who's an acupuncturist in Northampton, did acupuncture, I went to a men's group, which was fantastic. I, I do value the support group system to such an extent, I think it really is a form for people to be able to talk about issues that very few people understand unless they go through it. Um, So anyways, did that, and, um, you know, here I am. Got more work to do is what I say. (laughs) Right. And during that that time, did you, you know, did you use your meditation practice or, you know, try to help facilitate your body to heal through meditation? Yeah, I think meditation really was my saving grace because I didn't sleep a lot. You know, the the chemo was they threw a cocktail together because 
transition transitional cell carcinoma is very unusual. Um, <clears throat> so I had about five different parts of cocktail, which were awful, and I would I couldn't sleep, and I felt like I was in a swamp most of the time. And um, yeah, it was just like kind of sitting there, kind of mindless, because my mind didn't work well. But um, it was tough. It was some tough moments, and uh, a couple of times doing chemo, I wished, you know, just take me out of this, get me out of here. But um, it was hard. Meditation did uh, a lot of good in the sense of not unraveling and getting totally into catastrophe. Um, <clears throat> I couldn't eat much, but I think this thought of you know, the fine line between knowing, having no control, on the other hand, going like, I need to live. I have, I have I had one grandchild at the time. I have five now. Actually, my grandchild is 17 now. She was like one year old. But um, it, it was hard. It was really hard. And uh, I think the other thing that's talked about a lot in support groups is how people really don't understand. So we feel a little bit better, and people go like, oh, you look great, and it's like, I oh, don't. I mean, I feel like, you know, just awful. And so, and, and people are afraid of their own mortality, so they don't know how to deal with somebody. And I think the presencing that's helpful with meditation and mindfulness is so important to be present, and a lot of people cannot do that. And, uh, you know, often with my... <clears throat> patients now and I teach a couple of support groups in Massachusetts and mindfulness there and we know when you lie there in bed we know when somebody comes in the room whether they can be present or not because a lot of people will talk a lot or can, can I help you do this or that and it's not about that it's just about can you hold my hand and you know there's nothing else you need to do it's just great you're coming here and being with me mm. so <clears throat> Now, um, do you have any belief system or in trying to understand why sometimes maybe people, you know, do have a certain illness or have cancer, recover from it? I mean, do you feel that it served a certain purpose in your life or do you try to make understanding as to why this happened and why you needed to go through this? Yeah, I think it's a, it's a natural way of going like, you know, what did I do wrong is usually the first question. Um, I didn't get into that because I, I spent a fortune on health food stores since, you know, for the last 40 years. Um, I, I think it's like what created that. And, and the variables are so large. I mean, it could be the environment. It could be genetic. It could be predisposition. It could be stress. I mean, you know, you name it. There's so many elements. Certainly had cancer in my family, on my maternal uh, grandfather died of cancer. My paternal grandmother died of cancer. Both of my sisters had cancer, one worse than the other. Uh, so, you know, there are all kinds of factors. And uh, I don't think it matters in the long run. You know, we talk in mindfulness. If, if you hit by an arrow, you know, what we tend to do is we create another arrow, meaning we go like, you know, where did it come from? Is it a designer arrow? Did it come from China? You know, we go into putting up storylines that get us away from what really goes on. And um, so we don't get into that that much when we talk about why we have cancer. It's more about what can we do about it? How can we navigate the health systems? Or I should care, you know, the sick care systems because 
people want to cure it, and we're talking more about the healing part, which involves the whole person. And uh, <clears throat> and how can we laugh? You know, we have a joke in our group, one of the groups in Amherst, Massachusetts, where about five years ago we had a person who had several recurrences, different types of cancer, first lung and then brain and so on and so on. But she, had, she was given six months to live, so she decided to go to all the places where she always wanted to go in her life. And so she did. And then she lived another couple of years and was basically without money because she spent all the money. <laughs> so now we tell everybody in the group, you, you know, where do you want to go in your life? Did you ever want to travel somewhere? And so we have people traveling and actually doing that, and it's wonderful. And a lot of people have been survivors for much longer than the time they were given. Uh, I have six ovarian women who've had it over six, seven years of, um, you know, pretty good quality of life. And that's what we what we really focus on is how can you improve your quality of life regardless of the quantity of days you have to live? Uh, you know, how can you really be alive in the time you've given or the time that you have, uh, which nobody really knows usually. And also just trying to integrate that even if you haven't been given a, a diagnosis of a terminal illness or have a condition, but how can we you know, why aren't we taking those trips when we're really healthy or, right. you know, just doing it now and having fun and, like you said, and laughing and what is it that we want to do, but we seem to put that off a lot in life. Yeah, yeah. But then when well, something like this or a health well, maybe scare. Maybe later, maybe, maybe in a couple of years, maybe in a couple of years, and, and sometimes uh, we miss the boat. Right. So when you were given four months to live, was that before? Was that when they found everything before they started the chemo? Yeah, it or were before, they um, even before the surgery? Um, yeah, and, and I, you know, I think some oncologists or some professionals will kind of give an, an estimate, and some people want to know. Um, I did want to know. I didn't like what I heard. Um, <clears throat> And part of it is sort of put one's affairs in order, you know, the issues, the financial issues, there's all kinds of uh, relationship issues. I mean, you name it, it's like all of a sudden the rug is pulled from under your feet and you go like, okay, what do I need to do? And that too, you know, we, we don't prepare for that. Uh, a lot of people don't have a will, they don't have uh, the five wishes forms and all that. <clears throat> so. Yeah, I, I, you know, I wasn't prepared. Definitely wasn't prepared. And now, after that, I did some trainings on being with dying. We teach a course, an eight, I mean, an eight-day or ten-day course in Santa Fe at the Zen Center on being with dying for physicians, nurses, because uh, oncology people, palliative care people, and so on. Because it's a way to be present. That's the key piece, but also to look at all the elements of what goes on when a, paper, when a person is diagnosed, because we lose our identity, right? I mean, we, our whole notion of who we are sort of uh, <clears throat> disappears all of a sudden when we become incapacitated or we really at um, <clears throat> under the care of somebody else or several people. Hmm. Yeah, and would you like to talk a little bit more about um, some of the programs that you are doing in Santa Fe? Sure. So I, I 
mentor um, a bunch of chaplains. We have two courts. So, so I'll give you an example. In March, I'm going for 10 days. Um, and I teach this embodied awareness program, which is movement. And uh, <clears throat> in part of it is because they get so much top-down in, information in 10 days that it's good to have something in silence besides meditation, sitting meditation. And we do the movement, then we talk about how to be connected. And I usually do that with the, with the new court that comes in. So in March, we're going to have court number nine coming in. They're all brand new, about 25 people. And that will be a great way for them to feel like they are <clears throat> connecting and, and sort of become a group by themselves. Court eight will graduate. Um, I'm sorry, court seven will graduate. And then they have another year to become ordained where they do individual work with the teacher. And court eight is in their first year. They're finishing their first year. They're going to take what's called jukai, basically a ceremony where they they take on a name. They're part of a lineage, a long Japanese lineage. And they have precepts, meaning they sign up to uh, have sort of an ethical uh, base. Uh, so it's like, you know, not killing the mind of compassion. It's not just killing animals or other people. Saying, but it's like killing the mind of compassion. It's not stealing or taking away what's not belong to us. So it's, it's not like commandments. It's more like this, these are the guidelines that are sort of your North Star. But it's a whole ceremony. So I'm going to be there to <clears throat> have meetings because I monthly I have uh, phone conferences with Court 7, Court 8, and then Court 7 will graduate, then move on. I'm letting them go, and I'm taking on a new one with Court 9. And so we have monthly meetings. We talk about how things are going. We talk about their inner chaplaincy, what's going on really internally with for them. It's a very strenuous program, very demanding, um, a lot of workshops to attend and, and uh, traveling. People are from all over the world, uh, like people from Singapore, from South America, Canada, you name it. So that's part of the work. And when I go down, uh, spending also individual time with people. Some are struggling for all kinds of reasons. And, uh, but it's, it's like college. Um, <clears throat> and then I also took what's called clinical pastoral education uh, certification. I didn't finish it because I didn't want to end up working in a hospital. I spent a lot of my work time in hospitals. But I did that at Bay State, and I worked on a cancer unit for a year um, as part of the formation. But in order to work in a health system as a chaplain, you need to get that what's called certification, clinical pastoral certification, which is a long and arduous process on top of the schooling at the Zen Center, if people choose to. Mm. Now, I know that you also offer some of the mindfulness stress reduction uh, training with law enforcement personnel, and, you know, that's, that's a pretty heavy-duty job for them as well. Do you yeah, actually, I, like, I, follow some of your students after those trainings, or do you have any no, success stories? I've done this many, many years. You know, Boston Stress Unit, they didn't have an employee assistance program, and a lot of the police people feel like they're between a rock and a hard place. You know, they get calls mm -hmm. to help people out. When they get there, people just scream at them or whatever. You know, nothing goes on all of a sudden. 
and they don't have a release valve for all that energy and, and being sort of, you know, caught up in this fight-flight-freeze type of uh, energy all the time, reptilian brain energy. And um, I actually talked to Craig here, the police chief, who is a fantastic person, is a fantastic human being, and uh, so I was talking about 85 policemen, I think. And I've talked to him. He's done other training for the force. Um, the question is whether to do that as a group or different groups, given the size of it, or doing it with people who need to kind of <clears throat> calm down at different times because they get too activated. And we, you know, we talk. Um, we'll see if we can do something. But this mindfulness is also taught in the Army, Navy, Air Force, and there's a lot of controversy about it. Some people think it makes them better killers. Um, for my humble opinion, I, I, I think it's actually helpful because they have a lot of post-traumatic stress and it helps them not to be as reactive. Um, and uh, <clears throat> we actually had on the faculty in Santa Fe, some people, we had a Brigadier General, a woman who was part of the faculty who teaches trauma resiliency. And um, so there's a lot going on in different contexts. And uh, you know, I do see benefits more than uh, <clears throat> more than not. Um, but it, being a police woman or police uh, man is, is a very difficult job. And I think in this town they do a fantastic job, really, for the most part. Yeah, I'd agree. Um, and then were you also mentioning that you do some consultation online for people? So if they wanted to contact you um, to do work with you, what kind of programs do yeah, you have available? Individually and in person. I, I was thinking about doing something online, and my skills online are fairly limited. <laughs> and, and I'm busy because I give a lot of talks. I do the marketing for our program, too. Um, so, I, you know, I have, <clears throat> I have my own time, but I'm busy almost every day. And um, But I do see people individually and uh, follow some cancer patients individually. I've done some mindfulness individually. And uh, I just started a group in in the hospital here in Saratoga and uh, kind of building it up. There are about three, four people now and hopefully get a critical mass of people around seven or eight, which usually is uh, more efficient to have that number of people. So right now building that up and hopefully get it going. And it's it's open to all types of cancer. People have all types of cancer. And it's really needed. As I mentioned earlier, I think support groups are so important because it's a safe container where people can talk about anything and everything that pertains to their journey, it's a very difficult journey of suffering. And um, I like to lead those groups. I usually don't do all that much work, just kind of pay attention, observe, and get it going in a direction that's beneficial for everybody. Wonderful. Well, thank you so much for taking the time to to uh, speak with us today. And I love the work that you're doing. And um, people, if they want more information about the services and the group that you run, they can head over to OneRoofSaratoga.com. Is there yeah. are there any other links that um, I have a you'd like to let people website that's Mindful Living Community 
Facebook.com, uh, where I'm going to start posting more and more um, pieces that I write that put out there in different articles or um, different types of meditation. I'm going to do more and more of that so, so people can benefit from it online. Um, yeah, OneRoofSaratoga.com is fine. Okay, great. Well, thanks again for being here with us today. Oh, thank you kindly. Really honored to be on. Thank you. If you'd like more information about our films or to purchase our DVDs, you can head on over to our website at thepastseries.com. They're also available to purchase on amazon.com. Our films are also streaming online at vimeo.com, guyamtv.com, and iTunes. If you have a show suggestion or would like us to interview someone specifically, please feel free to shoot us an email at info at com or send us a tweet at thepastseries. Please rate and review us in iTunes and subscribe. We hope you enjoyed the show. <laughs>